Good morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to Psalm 105, uh, Psalm 105, and then also mark uh, Genesis 37, because we're going to read from Psalm 105, and then we're going to flip back pretty quick to Genesis 37. Uh, But we're in a uh, series called The Gospel Thread this week, too, and we're walking through uh, some stories in the Old Testament, seeing how they all really tell one big story of Jesus coming to save the world from sin. So we started last week in Genesis chapter 3 and saw the, the fall uh, and the, the curse that comes into the world, the cause of sin and the rebelliousness of uh, Adam and Eve. It's a disease of sin that we inherit. Uh, we all have a sin nature uh, that we're born with. And, and moving on from there, uh, the rest of the Bible, uh, based on what we read in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, that God promises that he'll send them aside to save the world, uh, the rest of the Bible and the rest of the Old Testament is about God making good on that promise, sometimes in very unexpected ways. And uh, we see some of that happening in, in the story that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, so we're going to look at the story of Joseph this morning. Uh, so again, we're going to be in Genesis uh, 37, but we're going to start uh, our reading in Psalm 105. But the story of Joseph is an incredible story. Some of you are maybe familiar with that. This is, of course, not the Joseph from the New Testament, who's the earthly father of Jesus. This is a Joseph from the Old Testament that we learn about at the end of the book of Genesis. And it's an amazing and incredible story. It almost makes you wonder, like, what he experienced. You know, if he were to write a, an autobiography at the end of his life, what would, we, what would he call it? You know, so if you're, like, really important and you make an impact in the world, it's very common for you to write an autobiography. And then a lot of thought goes into the name of that autobiography. For example, St. Augustine called his autobiography Confessions. Uh, Ronald Reagan, I look this up, his is An American Life. Catherine Hepburn, anybody remember the actress Catherine Hepburn? Hers is just called Me, all right? Not very creative, just Me. Nelson Mandela, A Long Walk to Freedom. And then I think my favorite title of, of all time for autobiographies is David Hasselhoff's autobiography. You don't know who David Hasselhoff is? All right. What do, what do we know David Hasselhoff from? Right? N- not Baywatch. Shame on you. It's Knight Rider. Knight Rider. Right? Uh, but his, his, his autobiography is called Don't Hassle the Hoff. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Well, if you think about Joseph's life and... and you kind of sum it up into one phrase. You know, you may be familiar with the story, and you may think that something like from rags to riches would fit. Or you may think because something like from the pit to the prison to the palace would fit. The amazing life of Joseph. But when you actually study Joseph's life, you realize, you realize that it's not as much about Joseph as it is about God and the faithfulness of God. Maybe his book would be called something, if, even if you ask Joseph, maybe it needs to be called something like the sovereign Lord is with me. The phrase, the Lord is with me, comes up over and over again. Maybe all things work together for good. I'm not sure what you would call it, but I am confident of this, that if you'll lean in, that this story will encourage your faith this morning. It will encourage you and teach us all to marvel at God's power and to rest in his sovereignty. And that's our prayer this morning as we get into this. Uh, Stand as we read Psalm 105, beginning to read in verse 7. This is David. David is going to rise as the king of Israel and will, of course, uh, be uh, camping out there in, in David's story some in this series. Uh, but this is years and years later, David looking back and recounting from the promised land God's faithfulness to his people. And so in Psalm 105, verse 7, let's read what he writes. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel an everlasting covenant, 
saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number of a little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of the house and ruler of all of his possessions to bind his princess at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray, Lord, as we lean in, that our hearts would be teachable this morning. We are thankful, Lord, that you are a God who is in control. Lord, there is nothing happening right now that has surprised you in our culture, in our world, in our city, in our country, in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships. Lord, you are the sovereign God of everything. And Lord, I'm so thankful that we serve a God who is faithful, who is good, was completely in control. And I pray as we lean in this morning, as we see that all those truths demonstrated in this story, that we will leave here marveling at who you are, your majesty, your power, your sovereignty. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want you to do is, like I said a second ago, turn back to Genesis 37. We'll probably reference 105 in Psalms later on in the message. But uh, we're going to be in Genesis 37 moving forward. And here's a quick synopsis of, of where we are and where, you know, kind of what happens in between where we left off and where we're picking up this morning. A sovereign God has created the world. Uh, everything in it creates man in his own image uh, to worship him, to serve him, to enjoy him. Uh, but uh, humanity rebels against him. Uh, there's a fall and we go out to a broken world full of pain and brokenness and rebellion. God destroys the first world through a flood, but preserves a man and his family named Noah. Uh, who, and then he comes to an unexpected family. He calls a man named Abram. Uh, and he's a pagan idol worshiper. And, and he comes to God and becomes a worshiper of the one true God. And God makes him a promise. In Genesis chapter 12, a very, very important promise that he would give to Abraham an offspring. So many that he wouldn't be able to count them. And one of those offspring would be the seed that's promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that'll crush the head of the serpent, that'll crush the head of the enemy. And he makes a promise that through Abraham and his descendants, through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. That God would never leave them, that God would would protect them, that God would always bless them and watch over them, and everything would always be faithful to keep that promise in the lives of his people. And at the end of Genesis, the author of the book of Genesis, who is Moses, writes down the story of Joseph to illustrate that promise. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. All right, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. That's where the 12 tribes of Israel come from, and one of those sons is named Joseph. So let's walk through the life of Joseph this morning, and we're going to divide this up into four scenes, all right? So we're going to walk through his life, got a lot of ground to cover, and so uh, hold on tight. We're going to walk through uh, 37 through 50. I hope you brought your lunch this morning. I'm just kidding. First scene is this, uh, Joseph dreaming, Joseph dreaming. Verse 2 says this, there are generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to the father, or to their father. Now Israel, who, just so you know, is also 
called Jacob. Um, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So a little background. All right. So when Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, when Jacob leaves home, he goes out to find a girl to marry, finds a girl named Rachel, really loves her, wants to marry her. uh, But he has to go. He has to work for it. Her father, who is Laban, makes him work for seven years to take his daughter's hand in marriage. Well, he gets to the end of that seven years and Jacob gets deceived by Laban. He pulls the old switcheroo and he deceives him into marrying uh, Rachel's sister, who is Leah. And so he has to agree to work a, an extra seven years to marry Rachel. All right. That's the one who he really, really liked. And so he, he ends up uh, along the way having kids first with Leah. Rachel gets frustrated and has Jacob sleep with her servant so that uh, she can have kids on her behalf. Leah does the same thing. It's a mess. It's a disaster. Right, there's polygamy going on. Uh, that's uh, never good. All right, Jacob has uh, all of these wives having babies with servant girls, and you're like, this is where you go. Hold on, time out. This is the family that God's going to use to bring the Messiah into the world. This wait, is this is he at the right house? Is he is it, like, do we need to stop and, and, and figure out if this is the right family? Right, this is this is a man not leading his home in a godly way. This is a man who's departed from the the create the order that that God had set up in the Garden of Eden. Of course, Adam and Eve departed from, and they f- departed from it big time, all right? So it's, it's disastrous. Things are broken, all right? We don't have time to comb through all of it. We don't have the time to comb through all the dysfunction that you see in Isaac's family, Abraham's family. But I just want you to know, this is just some encouragement, no matter how dysfunctional your family feels, no matter how bad things feel, no matter how messy things feel, there's hope for you. Look at this family, all right? If God can work through, by his grace, Bring about beautiful things through broken families like this. There's hope for your family. Well, anyway, years later, uh, finally, Rachel and Jacob have a son together. And their oldest son, his name is Joseph. The youngest son's Benjamin. Rachel dies and giving birth to Benjamin. Uh, but Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. All right? So Joseph, uh, he's, the, he's, the, he's the favorite child. He's the golden boy. He's the one that gets to stay up late to watch the game with dad. Right? He's the one who gets the big room to himself. Well, all the other brothers have to share these little small rooms, you know, with a bunch of bunk beds. He's the son who gets the, the brand new Ford Mustang for his 16th birthday while the rest of the boys have to share and cram into a little, I don't know, rusted up Ford Fiesta. All right. He's the favorite son. And what didn't help the whole situation is Jacob thought it'd be a good idea to give his special son like a Technicolor dream coat that he could wear around. And the coat, uh, really what it's doing is it's signifying love and acceptance. He wants him to know that he's loved and accepted. Really, above all, he's, he's showing just blatant favoritism. If you've been in a home where favoritism has been experienced, it causes problems. Actual, the Hebrew for, the original Hebrew for that phrase, coat of colors or coat of many of colors, I don't know what your translation says there, uh, but you might even see this in the notes, but the Hebrew, the original says coat of long sleeves. That's really what it says in the Hebrew. Um, the other brothers had short sleeves, shorter tunics, because that's what they wore to work in. So the dad gives him a coat with sleeves, this ornate robe, as if to announce symbolically, like, this is my son. He's a special son, doesn't have to do manual labor. He's above that. So you can imagine his brothers probably weren't big fans of that, right? They come in from a long day of hard work, get short tunics. They come in, they're sweaty, they're dirty. And here's, you know, here's Joseph kicked back on the front porch, you know, drinking some sweet tea in his tuxedo that his dad bought him, you know? So it definitely stirred up some jealousy in the brothers. And to throw some gasoline on the fire, 
Joseph has some dreams one night and because he's a teenager and doesn't know how to keep certain information to himself at times with a little thing we call tact, right? He thinks it's a good idea to wake up the next morning and maybe over a bowl of Captain Crunch stands up in his uh, rainbow bright robe and begins to tell them about his dream. And this is what his dream was in verse six. It says, hear this dream that I have dreamed. He's talking to his brothers. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. I'm sure that went well. All right. In verse 9, he shares another dream, kind of same idea, and all the family bowing down to Joseph. So he's, he's definitely immature. So we see immaturity in Joseph. Often we can kind of paint uh, Joseph as this, this perfect uh, figure. He wasn't. He was a man with a nature just like ours. And so you see immaturity in him. Definitely not deserving of the kind of vitriol that you're seeing from his brothers, but definitely some pride you know, coming through here, a lack of tactfulness, immaturity. His dad even has to rebuke him in verse 10 for sharing you know, the dreams like he did. But these dreams are actually going to serve a very important role in his life. See, spoiler alert, when we, we serve a God, when you come to God, when you have a relationship with God, you serve a sovereign God who's directing all things in the world and in our life to bring about his beautiful and glorious purposes. Even through broken, difficult, trying times. See, Joseph... Things are kind of good right now for Joseph. I mean, it, it, it is difficult. He's, he's dealing with, with you know, some uh, you know, jealousy from his brothers. They're mean. They mock him. You know, they probably beat him up a little bit. But he's still got his father's love. Still got his nice looking robe. Still got all the, the little you know, bells and whistles that come along with being the, the favorite son. But God in these dreams, what he's doing is he's giving Joseph, unbeknownst to him in the moment, promises that he'll need to cling to. In trying days ahead. Because see what happens is Joseph's about to find out that God's got some things on the itinerary for his life that Joseph didn't know about. That Joseph would have said, I didn't sign up for. And this is what God does for us. Listen, you're here this morning and I want you to know every time we gather together like this corporately for worship, when we open God's word, what you're going to hear this morning from God's word, not from me, but from God's word, are promises. He's going to give you, he's going to give you promises to anchor your heart in this morning for you to, to live in. Because some of you literally walked in here today and you right now are experiencing something on the itinerary of your life that God has put there that you didn't ask for, and it's difficult. Some kind of detour, some kind of unexpected struggle, some kind of trial. And maybe you walked, listen to this, you walked in here today, and you feel the weight of that, and you don't know what God's doing, you don't know where he's going, some kind of detour, some kind of unexpected struggle, some kind of trial, you don't know where to turn, you maybe feel like God has abandoned you, you're not sure what to think, you can't, maybe you're, it's so, you're almost at the, at the verge of despair, you don't know up from down. I want you to know this. You're here for a reason. It's not by accident that you're here this morning. You're going to hear God's word, which is going to lay out in front of your life promises that you can anchor your heart in. That you can live in. So Joseph dreams. And in those dreams are going to be promises that he'll be able to live in that will carry him through trials in the days to come. Well, Let's get to the trials. Joseph dreams, and here it comes. Next on the itinerary of his life, Joseph betrayed. One day, Joseph's brothers are out in some pastures that were known for being dangerous areas. So uh, Jacob asked Joseph to get off the front porch and run out there. Maybe he gets on his souped up, you know, nice, fancy, big tire golf cart that's just his, you know, and he rides out into the pastures and begins to try to track down his brothers. 
And it says that, you know, he's off in the distance and just all that jealousy is brewing, right? They're beginning to get insecure. They're wondering if Joseph's going to be the heir of the inheritance. If Jacob's, it makes sense that he's going to give it to him. And so here they see Joseph coming in the distance, you know, riding on his, on his fancy golf cart, you know, his hair blowing in the wind with his nice rainbow bright robe flowing in the wind. And he just, he just doesn't have a care in the world. And he's smiling. Hey guys, he's waving. What he doesn't know Verse 18 is that they have been conspiring against him to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest brother, steps in, says, guys, that's probably not the best idea. He says, why don't we just throw him in this pit over here? He says they threw him there in a waterless pit. In other words, it hurt. That's why it's described that way. And in verse 25, it says they throw him in this pit, and it says they sit down and eat. What a, what a sad picture that is. A tragic picture. His brothers have turned on him. He's probably, he's certainly gotten injured. He's crying out for help. And they sit down and have a snack. You know, are they joking? Are they mocking him? It's definitely clear that they haven't, you know, pushed the option of killing him off the table. Because in the next verse, it says, About this time, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders on its way to Egypt, it appears. And Judah, one of the brothers, is like, Hey, I have an idea. Instead of killing him, that's what he says. So they're thinking about killing him still. Let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites. We want to murder him. He'll be long out of our lives, out of our hair. And we can even make a little money. And so they agree to sell him. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver, the price of a slave. And to cover their tracks, they take his robe that the father gave him. They cover it in goat's blood. And they go and find the father. And they basically convince him that an animal has killed Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. And Jacob is devastated. But imagine how Joseph feels being carted away in chains by these Ishmaelites as a slave. What's in your mind if you're him? What are you tempted to think about? You're tempted to think, God, what are you doing? Like, what, what are those dreams about? Like, how can this be part of your plan for my life? But what Joseph doesn't see and what he can't see in that moment as he's now part of that caravan riding on the way to Egypt, something that he didn't have plans to do. What he can't see is that that caravan appearing on the horizon, heading towards Egypt on that very day, at that very moment, was the sovereign hand of God at work. What he can't see is the hurt and the betrayal that he's experiencing from his brothers was actually the providential hand of God working something out. What about you? Let me ask you a question this morning. How would the perspective that you have on life change if you believe that every situation in your life that you find yourself in, that God led you into it and he led you into it for a purpose and he's using it in divine ways that you can't see right now? So Joseph's betrayed. Third thing is Joseph thriving. We see Joseph dreaming. We see Joseph betrayed. We see Joseph thriving. So Uh, What happens in Egypt? Turn with me to uh, Genesis 39. Genesis 39. First six verses of Genesis 39. Just listen if you don't have your Bible with you. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This was at the slave market that day. An Egyptian. They brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master, Potiphar. His master saw that that the Lord was with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. 
And he made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, if I'm Joseph, I'm getting to Egypt. I've had a long ride to Egypt. I'm fed up. You know, I, I'm kind of done. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you, you feel like he's got every justifiable reason to have his arms crossed. Like, oh, this isn't fair. This is garbage. What is this? I've tried to be somewhat faithful to you, God. I should not be here. I don't deserve this. This is injustice. I should be back at my dad's house in, my, in that robe my dad gave me, living my life. But here I am, betrayed, kidnapped, sold as a slave. You know, he might be tempted, or you might be tempted to go, hey, I'm thrown in the towel. I'm not following God anymore. It seems like he has every justifiable reason to pout and complain and to ball up in the fetal position and quit, but that is not what marks Joseph's life. What does is that he thrives wherever he's planted. It says there that the Lord was with him. And there seems to be an implication all through this narrative that he has an understanding that God is not just directing his life, that God's presence is with him and he refuses to be controlled by his circumstances and instead aims to live a life of faithfulness and integrity for that God he believes is in control and over his life, which wasn't always easy. There was times where it was very, very difficult. And what made it very difficult is he was a very good looking guy. All right. The Bible says that. In verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. All right? So, uh, which means come to bed with me. And I think, uh, think this, this is the only place I could find in the Bible, uh, and Moses does this here, where somebody's described as good-looking and in really good shape. That's what that means there. All right? When it says that he was handsome in form and appearance. So he's a good-looking guy. Right, But he also had a gym membership and he used it. All right? He didn't believe in cheat days. He was a, a very in shape young man. So Potiphar's wife makes a move on him and it says, uh, but he refused. And, and basically what happens is he's like, listen, I, I've been entrusted to take care of this house. I want to do that with integrity. And he goes, and then beyond that, he goes, God's given me this opportunity that I'm living in right now. How could I sin against my master? And more importantly, how could I sin against my God? Which is remarkable. Joseph is a young man. He's away from home. He's not married. She's probably very attractive herself. And day in and day out, a situation is presenting itself as it says that she was very persistent to where a discontented heart could have been very susceptible to fall to this temptation. But he, he, he's a man who proves himself to be a man of conviction. He knows it's off limits. He knows that that's not an option. He knows that he better be killing sin or it'll be killing him, as John Owen says. He knows that sin is a killer beast that's to be slain, not a pet to be tamed. You can't domesticate sin. It'll consume you and it will destroy you. So he run, he literally runs from it. She was persistent. One day she latches onto his robe and he, he just finally just runs and leaves his robe in her hands. Well, she has that there as a prop she can use to make up a story about him. And she tells her husband that he tried to come in and take advantage of her. 
hey, he tried to come in and take advantage of me. Here's his robe. He left it behind. And so Potiphar gets incredibly angry. And look at verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Again, this is injustice. You want to know what injustice looks like? This is injustice. I mean, he hasn't done anything to deserve this. He sought to be faithful. He's trying to honor God. And what does he get to it? More trials. What does he get to it? He gets framed. What does he get for it? He gets lied about. And again, if you're Joseph, you're going, you know what? I'm done. This is not fair. I do not know where God is in this, where he's at in this. I don't know what he could possibly be doing that could be for my good. I, I, had, I, was take, I took you know, two steps forward and now I've taken 10 steps back. But these thoughts don't ever seem to be on Joseph's mind. There is a steady pattern in his life of trusting God and trusting that somehow God is using all of this, even the bad parts of his life for God's glory, for his good. And so instead of complaining, instead of pouting, he spends more time, more focused on being faithful and thriving where God has planted him. Instead of wasting time running from God, complaining about his circumstances, he's focusing on controlling what he can control. And thereby flourishing and blossoming in the soil that God's planted him in. See, you can't, there's a lot of you here this morning, you can't control the circumstances that you've been placed in. God's planted you, if you believe he's a sovereign God, in certain kind of soil. And sometimes it's seasons of being planted in very difficult soil. But what we learn in the life of Joseph is that instead of trying to allow circumstances to control us, we control what we can control. And what we can control is we can lean into God, we can trust God, and we can seek to trust that he's at work even when I don't understand what he's doing. There's a lot of things going on, thousands of things, millions of things. We don't know in the eternal mind and the eternal plan and the works of God what's going on even in an an individual life at any given time. And we could go down the list of all kinds of different things that God's doing that we know of as he's working in our lives, even in difficult circumstances. But one important thing that's part of that process is you need to know this. When you're going through a time of suffering, it's like God's using that as like sanctifying sandpaper in your life. When you don't run from it, when you lean into God, when you trust him, when you seek to thrive in the difficult circumstances and glorify God and suffer well for the glory of Christ, he uses that as sanctifying sandpaper in your life. We get so focused on, and we read stories like this of Joseph and we focus on, on the deliverance. Like, oh, my, my day is coming. My day of breakthrough is coming, right? I'm going to be delivered if I just hang in there. And we miss the, the fact that, that, the, that the most important kind of deliverance is actually done in the fiery trial. Being delivered from yourself. God melting away and burning away the parts of our life that don't look like Jesus Christ. And what we see right here is Joseph is surrendering to God, even in the fiery trials, is he's learning to depend on God. He's learning to, to walk with God through difficult times. But practically speaking, we can look back and see that he's actually learning how to administrate. From the house to the prison, it's burning off some of the immaturity that you see at the beginning of the story where he doesn't know how to read a room, where he stands up and just blurts out some dream and has no understanding that is perceived in a way that, that wouldn't be good. 
He's learning how to organize. He's learning how to administrate. And he's learning how to be a good leader. And if you know this story at all, then you can already see, wow, God is preparing him in very difficult times for something in the future. You get to chapter 40, and just so happens that two of Pharaoh's officers are there in prison for something bad that they did. And it's the cupbearer and the baker. Right? So the cupbearer and the baker have thrown in the prison. You know, cupbearer, I can kind of understand. I don't want to, I want to know why the baker's in there, right? Did he burn the cookies? Like, did he burn the, burn the biscuits? Like, what did he do wrong that he got thrown into prison for? They have dreams one night. Chapter 40, verse 8, said, they said to him, We've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret. And Joseph said to them, and he was always careful to give glory to God. He said, do, he said um, do not interpretations belong to God? He says, please tell them to me. God, I, man doesn't interpret dreams. God does. He says, tell me, as he knows he's a vessel that can interpret dreams. And Joseph explains, and I'll, I won't go through all of it, but he explains to both of them. They're in the prison cell, cupbearer, baker's there. And he says, listen, I heard your dreams. God's told me what they mean. This is what it means, that both of your heads are going to be lifted up, right? And for you, the cupbearer, what that means is your head is going to be lifted up, which means you're going to be exalted back to the position you once held in the royal palace as cupbearer. He's like, cool, I like that. Turns to the baker and he says, you, however, your head's like literally going to be popped off. Like you're, it's going to be lifted off of your head. And he's probably like, well, that's not cool. Are you sure that's right? You know, that's the interpretation that he gives. They get out. The baker, of course, gets executed. The cupbearer gets his old job back. And before they uh, got out of prison, Joseph took time to pull the cupbearer aside and said, listen, I know you'll survive. I know you're going to get your job back. Would you do me a favor? Would you please show me kindness? He says this in verse 14, to mention me to Pharaoh so that I can get out of here. Cupbearer gets free, gets his job back, forgets to tell Pharaoh. Forgets about Joseph. And for two years, Joseph sits in that prison. And as it says in Psalm 105, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. For two years, he had to sit there day in and day out in those shackles, feeling forgotten, in pain. Have you ever been tested by God's slow fulfillment of his promises in your life? Have you ever been tested like that? To where your circumstances uh, begin to mock your faith? Like, are you really going to, your circumstances begin to mock your faith to the point where they're like asking, hey, are you really going to keep following God? Are you really going to keep praying about this? Are you really going to keep trusting in him? Are you really going to keep wasting your life hoping in a God who seems silent? And there Joseph sat for two years in silence, wondering how God would keep his promises to him. Joseph experienced those same emotions, yet he keeps resting in the promises that God had given him. Chapter 41, after two whole years, says that Pharaoh has a dream. So he's there for two years in that prison. Pharaoh has a dream one night. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll summarize it. He has a dream about seven plump cows eaten by seven skinny ones and then seven plump things of grain taken over by seven thin things of grain. And in the morning, he calls his magicians to come in and to interpret the dreams. They're like, we don't know. Uh, you know. So they're all in there. You know, he's seeking counsel from everybody on his staff. And the cupbearer comes in and goes, I just remembered a guy. Two years ago, I was in prison. And there's a Hebrew in that. I'm not sure if he's still there. May still be in prison. May have been released. May be dead. I don't know. But he was able to interpret my dream. And so Pharaoh says, well, go get him. So he brings Joseph in to see him. And Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh and says, here's the deal. I've heard your dream. This is what it means. There's going to be seven years of plenty 
in the land. There's going to be seven years of famine that are going to consume those years. And you're going to need a wise man. Your dream is telling you that you're going to need a wise man to oversee an effort to prepare for that famine. You're going to need a really good administrator to store up 20% of all the grain coming in so that you can be, so you can get ready. And then he kind of hands it over. He's not candidating for himself. He's not like, okay, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know who could do that, you know. But he just hands it back over to him. Something impresses upon the heart of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, you know, you seem like a man of wisdom, a man who has great potential to be a great leader. I want you to help me with that. And listen to what it says. This is where where Joseph goes. Think about all the things that he's been through. Let's look at what Pharaoh says about him in Genesis 41, verse uh, 41 through 43. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in a second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee, as he set him over all the land of Egypt. My goodness. After 13 years of being forgotten, of feeling forsaken, he goes from being a prisoner to prime minister. 13 years, out of sight. 13 years, thought for, to, to some as, as dead to being promoted to the right hand of the most powerful leader in all the land, which leads us to the last point in the last part of the story is Joseph reconciling. Joseph dreaming, Joseph betrayed, Joseph thriving, Joseph reconciling. In chapter 41, it goes just as the dream revealed it would. Pharaoh's dream, seven good years and then the famine and the people, and they're so prepared. People from all around the world are traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles to come to Egypt so that they get bread so they can survive and live. In fact, it's heard all the way out in a place called Canaan where Jacob, Joseph's father, hears about this supply of grain or bread that they have in Egypt. And it says in verse 42, after he sends his sons to Egypt to go pick up some food, here it is. Look at verse six. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land. You had to go before Joseph to put in your order for some grain. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Verse eight. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, how does that happen? Well, just it's a little weird, but Hebrew people were very, very hairy. All right, very hairy people. All right, just read about the story of Jacob and Esau and the uh, how Jacob robs that that inheritance. But you know the Egyptians, they were known to shave their heads. They had you know bunches bunch of makeup, especially those leaders. They wore metal beards. I think they should bring that back. All right, metal beards. So with the metal beard and the mascara, those guys didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And Joseph spends some time testing them. They don't know it's him kind of sends them back home and back and forth, and he wants to see if their hearts have changed. But let's fast forward to chapter 45. Beginning of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by, and he cried, and he made everybody go out from him. He said, make everyone go out from me, so that no one stayed when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh I heard it, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Like, that word dismayed literally means trampled. They, 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 the breath has been knocked out of them. 
Their heart is dropped into the ground. They don't know what to say. Their little brother, the one that they betrayed, the one that they turned against, the one that they treated with, with such wickedness has risen to be the second most important person in all of the world. And all they can think about is, I'm ruined. We are done. We are dead men walking. But in verse 4, and I love, I love this phrase in verse 4. It's one of my favorite phrases in the whole narrative. Joseph responds with this, come near to me, please. Not away with you, not off with your head. Come near to me, please. Don't keep it a distance. He still loves them. With all the ways that they've done him wrong and betrayed him, he hasn't allowed bitterness to take root in his heart. And he sought them out, pursued them, and loved them, and is reconciling them to himself in spite of the sin that they've done against him. And he forgives them. And he pours out mercy and grace on their life. He refuses to let bitterness live in his heart. And I think it's worth asking this morning, is there somebody who you need to forgive this morning? Someone who you have been, it may have been, it may have been someone for years that you're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment towards. You know, unforgiveness, when you dissect it, it's a, it's a strange thing. It's something that we harbor in our hearts. Resentment is something that we harbor in our hearts. It's really a survival tactic in our sin that we use. We think if we harbor that in our hearts, that it's kind of a way for us to get back at that person who was so you know, evil or had done something so wicked or had betrayed us in some different way. Like if I could just hold on to this, it's my way of controlling a way to punish them and get them back. They don't deserve to be left off the, be let off the hook. And what you don't see is when you do that, you're not punishing anybody else but yourself. Nelson Mandela, who made a statement, uh, I read, you know, the title of his autobiography earlier, and he made a statement that's very powerful. I think it's very, it's redeemable, you know, our Christian faith said resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. Resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it will will kill your enemies. So Joseph shows us what it looks like to live a life free of bitterness. Shows us that forgiveness is possible. He forgives them. He promises them no harm. Pharaoh allows them to come to to Egypt, man. uh, Jacob's family. This is Israel. This is where Israel, the nation of Israel begins. To grow. They come in as a party of 70. Over the next few centuries, they're going to grow into a nation. And it's because Joseph was in a position of power at the exact right time there to save his family, but to ultimately preserve the bloodline of the Messiah that had been promised to his great grandfather, Abraham. He's an unexpected savior. And hey, and the, and the line's going to go on through an unexpected person. It's not Joseph. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We get over to Matthew Begats. After all of this time spent on Joseph, we get over to Matthew Begats, Matthew chapter 1. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah? Je- Jesus is the line of Judah. The one who schemed to betray Joseph in the first place, God now by his grace is going to use him and is going to come down through his line. He's going to use him as the heir to carry on the line of the Messiah. And what happens is Joseph is able to look back over all of this and to see, listen to this, how God orchestrated it all. Romans 8.28 is stamped all over this passage. 
As we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph couldn't see in all those moments what God was doing, but now he's getting a glimpse. Sometimes we get a glimpse. Sometimes you won't get a glimpse. You won't see it all till eternity, but he gets a glimpse as he looks back and he sees the. He didn't know what God was doing in the moment. He didn't know what God was doing in that caravan of the Ishmaelites. He didn't know what God was doing when he was betrayed and thrown in a pit. He didn't know what was happening when he was thrown out in a prison and had to sit there for two years, right? But he looks back now and he sees the providential hand over everything. Every part of it. He's orchestrated it all. And I want you to know, if you know God, there is no place in your life, on the map of your life, that you can put your finger on where God is not at work. Even when you don't see him working, even when you don't feel him working, he is always with us. He is always working. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. And this is similar to Romans 8.28. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working in all things for your life. What does that mean by all things? You know, I looked that up this week in the original language. I really was um, interested to see what all things meant. You know what it means? In the Greek and the Hebrew, it means all things. Certainly there's a, certainly there's a Hebrew word for some, a Greek word for some. There's certainly there's a, some Hebrew words for most. And yet there it is, all things. What an incredible promise to anchor your heart in this morning and to live in. But I don't want to assume that every person here is a beneficiary of that promise. So we got to be very careful. Are you sure? Are you confident you're a beneficiary of that promise? So we got to be careful when we come to stories like this in the Old Testament because here's the truth. Here's the truth. You can't live with a promise like that You can't run out of here and follow an example of faithfulness like we see in somebody like Joseph until you first realize you ain't Joseph in this story. You say, well, who am I? We're born into this world, you and I, represented most in this story by the brothers. We're the ones who are sinful, wicked, jealous, envious, unfaithful, We've betrayed God. We've turned our back against him. We're rebels on the run. We're the ones who need a rescuer. We need a rescuer. And we, that rescuer is the one that Joseph's life points to. Joseph isn't just only being used in this story to secure the bloodline of the Messiah. He's actually a type of the Messiah. He's a picture of Jesus. Do you see it? Joseph is the shepherd who's uniquely loved by a father. Jesus is the good shepherd, beloved by his heavenly father. Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers and he was rejected. Jesus was sent into the world and he was rejected by us sinners. Joseph is sold for silver by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. Jesus was sold for silver by Judas. Joseph was was robed. His robe was stripped away from him. He was thrown into a pit and he cried out in agony. Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a cross and cried out in that dark moment in agony. Joseph is ultimately uh, proven to be the righteous one whose suffering will save a nation from physical death. And Jesus is the righteous King of kings and Lord of lords who would suffer to the point of death on a cross for our sins to save generations of people from every nation, not just from physical death, but from eternal death. Like every page in the Old Testament, like every page in God's word, it all points to Jesus. Do you know him this morning? Have you run to the cross where the Savior hangs that this story points to in giving your life to Him, repented of your sins and trusted in Him to be your personal Lord and Savior. 
if you have, this is really cool. Something really cool has happened. If you have what's happened by the grace of God, by the miracle of salvation, is you've been grafted in to the family tree of Abraham. You're a son and a daughter of Abraham and all the covenant promises that God made for those people. Now we are those people. You get to live your life in the covenant promises of God. He saved you from your sins. He's filled you with new life. He's put his spirit inside of you. He's given you the capacity in Christ to forgive people, to extend the forgiveness that you've been extended at the foot of the cross. He's given you the capacity to battle temptation with his power inside of you in the light of the love that he's shown you at the cross. You, now you have the capacity in Christ to live for God's glory. And now, listen, you, as living in the covenant promises of God, as a son or a daughter, now you can read your life with the, comp, with the confidence that Joseph reads his life with, believing that God is in control, that the God has proven himself faithful as we read it all the way through God's word, has proven himself faithful as sending his son to die on the cross for our sins and who has risen from the dead is the God who is in control of every single little speck and detail of your life. Even the bad times. To where, like Joseph, one day you'll be able to look back and even at the evil in your life, you'll be able to say even what was Meant as evil against me, God meant it for good. Listen, that doesn't diminish the seriousness of the sin in your life. That doesn't diminish the the seriousness of the sin that other people have inflicted upon you. That doesn't diminish the seriousness of evil around you. I'm not saying that, you know. And and if if you're really struggling with that, we need to work through that. You need to come see us even today. And we'd love to begin a process of you working through that. I'm just saying, listen, one day you're going to stand there before God. And as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, you're going to be able to look back and see how God used every single part of your life to accomplish his purposes. Every single part of your life used it in divine ways that we can't see or understand. My question is this. Are you willing to just to stand still this morning and to acknowledge him as that kind of God this morning? Are you willing to, because in a, in a room this size with people here, you probably have a list of things on the itinerary of your life that are happening right now that have showed up that you did not sign up for and that you wish would just go away? Would you lift your eyes to a God who is that in control? With a heart of faith, would you say, like Joseph, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Help me trust you. God, I don't understand what you're doing, but help me to control what I can control. Help me to be faithful. Help me to thrive where I'm planted. Help my heart to believe. Again, that as sure as you died on the cross and rose from the dead, that you're working all things out for your purposes in my life. You know, there's moments in my life where I scratch my head and I think, God, what are you doing? How in the world could this be part of your perfect plan? And I'm learning it's in those moments that I got to step back. And almost like with childlike faith, the spirit of dependence, lift my eyes to him and say, I don't know, but I trust that you do. And I trust that you're working where I can't see you working. 
And every once in a while, I'll, we have a piano in my house. Some of y'all know that I'd play a little music and uh, play around on the guitar and play around on the piano. And uh, there's a piano in my office, and sometimes I'll go in there, and uh, sometimes late at night, you know, that's when I play most music, and it's usually kind of quiet. I'm asked to be quiet. My wife comes in and is like, can you turn that down just a little bit? The kids are trying to sleep. And there's one song that I always come back to. It's interesting, you know, it's songs that you learn when you're a little kid. Sometimes those are the songs you keep coming back to. Songs that almost make you feel like a kid again. That sense of dependence and weakness, and maybe that's good. But sometimes I'll go into my office, and I did this a couple nights ago. Because believe it or not, even as a pastor, sometimes things get heavy and get wonky. It's like, God, what are you doing? One of my favorite songs to sing, and I'm not going to blurt it out, I'm just going to sing it kind of quiet, is an old song that stays in my heart, especially in days that are trying. But it's that song, God Will Make a Way, right? Just go in there and just sing softly, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. God is working in your life this morning. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. He never leaves me. He draws me closely to his side. With love and strength, he's working in you. For each new day, God will make a way. He will make a way. Let's pray.